0: Sometimes inspiration comes when you least expect it. Muses are everywhere, after all. A conversation that sparks an idea, an inconvenience that summons a solution, a fork that begs a question. Well, that's right, a fork. <laughs> you see, I was standing in my kitchen doing the dishes and letting my mind wander. In my stream of consciousness, As I vaguely registered each object as it passed through my hands, I passed the sponge over the length of the fork and thought about the number of prongs and why it didn't only have two on the far ends. Envision your hand doing the rock and roll sign. Well, I reasoned, small things such as peas and whatnot might slip through. It would be hard to get those. And that made sense. But then I stopped and slowly held the fork aloft before my very eyes but why i then wondered are the spacings between each prong the distance that they are and that my dear loves is how this week's theme was born welcome i'm rocket fox join me as for this episode we measure the strange Quickly before we get started, I have a fast announcement about next week that I'm going to share in the closing, so just stick around for a minute or so after our last tale. So, to really dig into the specifications of the Mighty Fork, it's important to look at the journey that brought the fork from its humble origin to the place of honor beside our plates today. I've heard it stated before. That utensils are the extensions of our fingers and hands, which I think is absolutely true and serves as a reminder that before forks, chopsticks, spoons, and knives, there were hands and fingers. And indeed, this is how our ancestors originally ate, food to hand, hand to mouth, using their teeth and nails to tear meat and fruit from whatever they needed tearing from. Of course, that really only goes so far when your teeth aren't fangs, your nails aren't claws, and your brain is itching to make a tool or two. Enter the knife, a sharp piece of formed flint or obsidian that could not only help in killing prey, but cutting bite-sized chunks for an easier lunchtime. Not only that, but knives provided for the extra benefit of being able to convey food to mouth Via a deft stab, allowing the hands to remain clean. In fact, in Saxon England, the eloquent eaters used their knife called a scramasax, both weapon, tool, and always by their side, as their eating utensil to keep those fingers sparkling. In time, even two knives were employed in the process of eating, both on one individual's plate. Or in a communal situation. Say, using one knife to hold a big piece of meat and the other to cut off a slice. Of course, especially in the second example, there started to be some frustration. The knife with its one point would only hold the meat so well when trying to cut with the other knife. Imagine the big piece of meat rolling back and forth and trying to hold it with only one knife point. At this point, The fork shape wasn't unheard of. The ancient Greeks had mentioned the use of a, quote, flesh fork that would extract meat from a boiling pot, a kitchen utensil resembling a hand that helped keep the fingers from being scalded, and of course there were pitchforks for hay and tridents, such as the one that Neptune would have used. And indeed, the next forks up for food use were really just the two-prong tools used for carving and serving. That rolling meat situation would be no more. It was sometime in the 7th century when it's believed forks started to make their way onto the royal tables of the Middle East for use in actually conveying food to the mouth, with that practice reaching Italy around 1100. The first time they were listed as, quote, official royal inventory came with Charles V of France, who had them in both gold and silver, but with the caveat that they were to be used only, quote, for eating mulberries and foods likely to stain the fingers. Use, of course, did spread, but not without some cynicism, as many thought it was ridiculous to lose half one's food as it was lifted from the plate. Which makes sense. I mean, imagine trying to use a fork for the first time ever, never really having seen it done much. So... It took a while to catch on. In 1608, there was a man named Thomas Corriati, or Coriate, who traveled through France, Italy, Switzerland, and Germany, and wrote and published Crudités hastily gobbled up in five months, which I feel is a really clever title. A passage of interest, however, is when in Italy he encountered the fork. The quote goes... <clears throat> I observed a custom in all those Italian cities and towns through which I passed that is not used in any other country that I saw in my travels, neither do I think that any other nation of Christendom doth use it, but only Italy. The Italian, and also most strangers that are comorant in Italy, do always at their meals use a little fork when they cut their meat. For while with their knife, which they hold in one hand, they cut the meat out of the dish, they fasten the fork, which they hold in their other hand, upon the same dish, so that whatsoever he be that sitting in the company of any others at the meal should unadvisedly touch the dish of meat with his fingers, from which all at the table do cut, he will give occasion of offense unto the company." as having transgressed the laws of good manners, insomuch that for his error he shall be at least browbeaten, if not reprehended in words. This form of eating, I understand, is greatly used in all places of Italy, their forks being for the most part made of iron or steel, and some of silver, but those are used only by gentlemen. The reason of this, their curiosity, is because the Italian cannot by any means endure to have his dish touched with fingers, seeing all men's fingers are not alike clean. Hereupon, I myself thought to imitate the Italian fashion by this forked cutting of meat, not only while I was in Italy, but also in Germany and oftentimes in England since I came home. Now, as so often unfortunately happens when people encounter something unusual or different, ridicule began from those who witnessed Coriati's new dining activity, and they began to call him Fursifer, which literally means fork-bearer, but also evidently meant gallows bird, or someone who deserves to be hung. But in my modern opinion... Versifer is kind of just a cool nickname, so (laughs) in some ways, I feel he really won on that one. Anyway, in time, the fork did in fact catch on, and beyond that, it became a standard of Western civilization's eating practices, turning the tables on who ridiculed who when it came to polite society and using forks versus fingers. Along with this societal evolution, The fork itself began to evolve as well. It went from two prongs to more, to help fill this gap and keep smaller foodstuffs from escaping. Three was good, but four was better. And by the end of the 19th century, that became the standard. Five and six prongs were given a go, but... At a certain point, it got to be too much. It felt just too wide for the mouth, and plus... Got to seem a little too much like a comb. So back to our original question. How far apart are the prongs, or tines, as I learned they are properly called, on a fork? It turns out there does not seem to be a standardized distance of negative space in there. Yeah. Now, I realize this isn't a satisfying answer after all of that, so... I did a little digging, and I did find one interesting, strange tidbit I wanted to include about the measurement of forks and how it affects us. As I fervently scoured the internet for research on this spiky utensil, of which there is shockingly little, I know, I did end up coming across something interesting on Science Daily, A study back in 2011 from the University of Chicago Press Journal came out with the findings that, when it comes to forks, the time spacing may not be standard, but overall, size does matter. The study took it to the streets, or rather, a popular Italian restaurant, filled with people with a clear goal to satiate their hunger. Researchers pointed out the effort involved in meeting this goal for people at the restaurant. Choosing the meal, eating the food, and paying for the meal at the end of the day. Much less, in my mind, getting dressed, leaving the house, and so forth. What they found was when switching the fork sizes of these hungry participants, using a larger fork, diners actually ate less food. It seemed the fork size actually served as a visual tool engaging how well people were doing in their goal of satiating hunger. You see, you don't feel full right away as you eat, and with a larger fork, people could more easily see the progress they made through their meal, as with the smaller forks, there was less of a visual impact. When reading this, I thought a larger fork could also potentially force people to eat a bit slower than when using a smaller fork, as there have been studies clearly showing that when slowing down to eat, it helps people not only enjoy and digest their food better, but feel full while eating less. However, researchers did mix it up by seeing what smaller portion sizes would do to the study results, and they found that with smaller portions, the size of the fork actually made no difference to how much people ate, lending more credence to the idea that there was really something behind being able to see how much of an impact one made on their goal, in this case, the goal being satiating hunger in the meal. After spending their initial time on the streets, researchers did take the study back to the lab, and interestingly, when applying the same methods, large versus small fork toward the meals, they found that those using the smaller forks ate less than those using the larger ones. Now, while one might think this would throw a hand-like utensil in the hypothesis of the importance of seeing an impact on the meal's larger picture, researchers pointed out one really big difference that could easily go overlooked. The participants' goal Those who were at the restaurant were there to eat. They made an effort to go out and satiate their hunger in a special way. Those who were participating in a lab study were there to... participate in a lab study. It was a different ultimate end goal, so it couldn't really be assessed the same way if the reasoning was really more psychologically goal-based. Overall... I found it to be a really interesting study that, again, while it didn't necessarily measure up to my initial search of prong spacing, really revealed something interesting about how our brains may work relating to goals and processing, even in our everyday life. An unexpected but delightful find that, personally, makes me think a little more about how I structure my own deliberate goals and what size bites I may need to break them into to ultimately make them work for me. For my next story, there are a number of scales used to measure the impact of a disaster. The Richter scale for earthquakes, the Saffir-Simpson wind scale for hurricanes, and the Waffle House Index for everything else. Yes, the Waffle House Index. Opened in 1955 by Georgia neighbors Joe Rogers Sr. and Tom Forkner. The Waffle House is a quick-eat diner chain with 1,900 locations in 25 states. And, of the roadside diners I've encountered personally, is one I've consistently enjoyed. However, the index does not have to do with the crispiness of their hash browns nor the tastiness of their waffles. Aside from the big yellow sign, they're also known for being open all of the time literally. For example, in 2011, when there was a tornado in Joplin, Missouri, the one that caused $3 billion in damage and killed 158 people, both local waffle houses never closed. And this consistent reliability didn't go unnoticed. In 2004, after hurricane after hurricane smashed against the east coast of the U.S., Craig Fugate, former director of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, finally put a name to what everyone had begun to inadvertently watch. The Waffle House Index. If the Waffle House of an affected area was up and running, index green. If it was up and running with a limited menu, yellow. But if the Waffle House was closed, index red. And this is something that the Waffle House itself takes very seriously. Panos Cuveles, a professor at the Olin Business School, said that they, quote, "...know immediately which stores are going to be affected, and they call their employees to know who can show up and who cannot. They have temporary warehouses where they can store food, and most importantly, they know they can operate without a full menu." This is a great example of a company that has learned from the past and developed an excellent emergency plan. Even when hitting an index red, Waffle House is notorious for getting back up and running ridiculously quickly. During Hurricane Irene in 2011, 22 locations lost power in North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. Within days of Irene's hit, All but one of those diners was back up and running. While it may initially seem like an odd choice of measurement system, it actually gauges so much more than the speed of wind or the strength of a tremor. It's community impact and resilience. Director of External Affairs at FEMA, Dan Stoneking, wrote in a blog post, "...the sooner restaurants, grocery and corner stores, or banks can reopen," the sooner local economies will start generating revenue again, signaling a stronger recovery for that community. Waffle House represents the top level of staying and comeback power in these disaster situations. That said, I would be remiss not to mention where COVID has fallen on the Waffle House index. It is the first time the index has been used to gauge a large-scale event that was not weather-related, and... In a big way, it has fallen into the red. However, as we continue forward into the year and more vaccines are distributed and precautions taken, I do feel confident that soon we will be back into the green. The last story I have for you takes a look at a little piece of common measurement knowledge and how it may not be as accurate as we once thought. For anyone who knows or has seen anything of my work in life outside of the podcast, it will come as no surprise that I am an animal person. <laughs> I am the fur, scale, tooth, web mother and caretaker ...of a number of lovable creatures that I absolutely adore. As part of that, I am always keeping track of where my guys and gals are in their own life cycles... ...because it helps me to care for them better, and I just get curious about that sort of thing. Aside from some breeds of parrots, koi, and tortoises... ...most of our loyal animal companions sadly have shorter lifespans than we do... ...which means they age and mature differently... Many of you will have heard of the equation, one human year equals seven dog years. So, if your pup is two in real time, it's as if they were a 14-year-old human. More or less. The way this system is broken down is by dividing the average human lifespan, 80 years, by the average dog lifespan, 12 years, and voila! Seven years per year. Well, technically, 6.66666, but... Essentially, seven. Considering that various dog breeds have differing lifespans, smaller ones tending to live a bit longer than larger, one could theoretically alter the equation to get the same idea. However, it turns out that this equation is problematic for more than its unsteady variables. Trek Eideker and his colleagues of the University of California in San Diego weren't satisfied with the rough estimate of age translation back and forth between dog years and the more or less human equivalent. So, they decided to science an answer using genetic analysis on the methylomes. DNA methylation levels in mammals, as it turns out, can be looked at to estimate the age of tissue in cell types. Using this method, Eidecker and friends tested 104 Labradors that ranged from tiny puppies to dogs of 16 and compared all of the methylomes to those of humans over the range of a lifetime. What they found was that instead of evenly matching year for year, like the classic dog age times seven might suggest, dogs actually hit straight up into adulthood pretty quickly and then just stay there for a while and slowly taper into older age. What the researchers found was that at one year old in real time, instead of the equivalent of seven human years, the dogs were actually 31. And at two, instead of 14, the dogs were a little over 42. A pretty big difference when thinking about your own fur baby, but an important one the research was not only useful in satiating our curiosity as pet owners, but can also help shed a light on when to keep an eye out for certain age-related diseases and things like that. Idiger and company also tested mice in the same way and found that a two-and-a-half-year-old mouse translated to a nine-year-old dog, which translates to a 66.2-year-old human, and specifically a nine-year-old Labrador given that different dog breeds, as I mentioned earlier, and also is as mentioned in the article, age differently. This shows, however, that there is room for the test to be used for a variety of mammals to see where they are in their life's journey compared to us. NewScientist.com, where I found the article on the story, has the official equation, but more useful, considering it includes a variable that wasn't totally explained, My guess is it has to do with the methylation level, is an interactive chart on which you can use your mouse to hover over a point to see the human years equivalent on dog life. The link for the article is, as always, in the show notes, and the chart is pretty cool to play with. Now anyone who has had a puppy into a dog will know that even well into a year-plus, it's sometimes hard to believe that your pet is the equivalent of a 30-something-year-old. But remember, this is a genetic age. If you think about wolves in the wild, around a year is when they start doing the behaviors of an adult, and around two is when they head out to start their own pack or participate in caretaking of the next generation if they stay with their own family. There was a really interesting Siberian fox project in Russia that demonstrated just how the process of domestication actually keeps the animals more puppy-like for longer to create more human-friendly companions. But that's a story for another time. Now, the desire to translate animal years into our own equivalency may seem like yet another way in which we attempt to humanize other living things to make them more like us. However, I think there can be a lot of value in learning to better comprehend the world around us through a context we already understand i believe it can ultimately help us toward becoming more compassionate and better caretakers all around big black lab crooked ear and a broken pad walking sideways like a soft shell crab wobbling at the knees he's got no tags just a tongue and a tail of wax for the home that he never had but he's always gonna see Thank you so much for joining me for this week's Bite of Strange. If you want to help support the show and get access to the bonus stories, such as this week's tale of radioactive bananas, for just a dollar a month, head on over to patreon.com slash So, next week I am actually taking the week off, so there will not be a new episode this coming Monday, and I will greatly miss you, but... I cannot wait to be back the next week with more amazing and strange stuff to share. <laughs> In the meantime, I would love to hear from you. Hit me up on the socials at facebookcom fantastically strange, fantastically strange on Instagram, and fantasticoddpod on Twitter, or shoot me an email at fantastically strange at rocketfox.com. If you have any topics you'd like to see, a question, comment, or just to say hi, Don't be shy, I'm here! I write, research, edit, produce, and do all of the things myself, and am so honored to share with you. So, if you're enjoying, please consider leaving a 5-star review, rating, or sharing the show with someone you know who also may dig the strange. It means the world to me to be able to share these stories with you, and I appreciate your sharing your time with me. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you again, and I cannot wait to see you next time.